Hello, my name is Stephen Saperstein Frug, and welcome to the podcast presentation of Retcon, a mosaic story in three movements. Since this is the introductory episode, I'm going to take a few minutes to explain what this podcast is and what I am planning to do here. This podcast is going to present a series of audiobooks, or perhaps I should say audio stories, of the various individual stories making up the larger mosaic story that is entitled Retcon. A mosaic story, you might ask, what is that? Well, a mosaic story is my term for a series of stories which combine to make up a larger overarching narrative. It's a form we're all very familiar with from television, but it's also been used in comics and radio drama and, of course, prose fiction. This particular mosaic story will be made up of short stories, which I am releasing both as audiobooks on this podcast and also as ebooks at all of the various major ebook vendors. The series is going to be divided into three parts, or three movements, as I've decided to call them, and each will be nine stories long, so there will be a total of 27 stories. I'm going to be putting out these stories at the pace of one per month, taking a break of a month or two or three between each movement to catch up and catch my breath. So what you're going to hear after this introduction, and in recording it, I am reminded that the fine science fiction writer James Tiptree Jr. once called introductions and afterwards the dribble around the story. So I will try to keep this brief. But after the dribble is finished, what you'll hear is the first story in the series. The stories are all going to be roughly 15,000 words which means, for those of you who track publishing categories, that these are actually novelettes, not short stories, although I don't think that is a difference that need detain ordinary readers. What it does mean is that there should be a few hours of listening. I can't say precisely because I'm still recording it. You can look at the timestamp on the podcast and you'll know more than I do, unless I retcon this very sentence I'm saying to add in the precise time, which would let me tell you that it's one hour and 43 minutes long. Then, if you enjoy the story, please subscribe to the podcast, then you'll be able to hear the second story when it comes out in a month. Just a few more notes before I begin the story. First, I should make clear that this podcast won't feature a professional narrator. This will just be me reading the stories to you. So I hope you will all be willing to bear with me, since I am not a trained actor. Or, as Dr. McCoy might put it, I'm a writer, not an audiobook reader. At the same time, I, for one, always feel there's something special about hearing an author's reading of their own work. Maybe I'll throw in a plug at this moment for one of my favorite writers, John Crowley, who has recorded several of his own audiobooks, and I think they're superb. At any rate, author reading his own book is what you're going to get in this podcast. And, of course, the main thing in this series are the words, the story, and you'll be getting that complete and unabridged. A second note. 
This podcast is, of course, free. But if you would like to support my work, I would be very grateful if you would do that. One of the best ways to support my work is by going and buying the ebooks. If you don't want to have the ebooks yourself, you could always gift them to a friend. As I said before, the ebook should be available by the time you hear this at all the usual suspects. And you can find links to the various suspects carrying my ebook at my website, stephenfrug.com. Another way to support this series is to leave a review, either of this podcast on your podcast app of choice or at one of the ebook vendors. And perhaps the very best way to support this series is to personally recommend it to a friend that you think might like it. That's really, I suspect, how this story will find its audience if it does, and I would be very grateful for your help. Okay, that's enough dribble around the story for now. So enjoy, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast after you're done listening to the first story so you can hear the next one the following month. All right, here we go. Zero Second by Stephen Saperstein Frug. Estragon. I can't go on like this. Vladimir. That's what you think. Samuel Beckett, waiting for Godot. Twenty. Time as they knew it was ending. They had struggled for years against that knowledge that knowledge which was, in truth, nothing but a sharp awareness of ignorance, a hard line drawn around all they knew, a limit they resented, even as they recognized that that which lay within their ken was far more than most were given to know. But then the wealthiest are so often the greediest. Their frustration was primed and paired with uncertainty, they did not even know how to conceive of this limit that nevertheless for four decades was never far from their thoughts. And their struggles and metaphors changed over the years, each with the other, as they sought first to see beyond that darkness, and then to cut that Gordian knot, and then reconceive this muddled understanding, to breach that iron wall, to push the limits of the knowable further out, all in vain. What did they gain for their labor under the sun? And now here it was, upon them, the limit itself, the barrier, the moment, the thing, towards which they had all fallen so steadily and so mercilessly and for so terribly long, and there was nothing to do but throw up their hands and brace and scream and wait for the car to smash into the wall or go over the cliff, or spin out upon the infinite ice, or maybe, just maybe, to run down the road as if nothing had ever happened, as if in the end all that had died were nothing more than their expectations, as if the not knowing meant nothing, signified nothing, beyond the mere fact of ignorance itself. And yet even here, at the very brink, in those last seconds, 
86,400 of them stacked up in one last maddening, terrifying, rushing flood. They couldn't help gathering, despite the bitterness and disdain that had over the years arisen among them, meeting yet again to try one last time, to strive once more to see if the ending might be avoided, or at least, now that it was so close, seen past. Couldn't hurt. Upon that much, they all agreed, although they did not agree upon the nature of that could not, just as they disagreed on so much else. Yet the helplessness, though disputed in cause, was a consensus of fact. So they arranged a meeting to talk one final time, precisely one day before whatever it was that they were trying to understand or avoid, or prevent, or look through, finally came, or passed, or happened. One day before zero second. 19. They had first learned of zero second 40 years before, on the day that they went to meet the first, and last, time traveler. Three of them had gone, because the note had said it would be three, and thus it had to be. The two lab leaders went, of course, Wu Xiaoyan and Jake Goldberg. Accompanying them was Xiaoyan's lab manager, Mona. Mona had rented a van, and early that day they met in one of the large, largely empty North Campus parking lots, where they could leave their own cars for the day without anyone noticing or caring. Just after dawn, the sky now light, but the warmth of the day not yet thickened, Mona and Jake stood leaning against the van, drinking from paper-to-go cups the coffee Mona had brought, watching the steam mix with their visible breath. When Xiaoyan finally pulled up, Jake looked pointedly at his watch but didn't say anything. Xiaoyan simply said, Sorry, babysitter troubles. They promptly climbed into the van and set off, Mona holding the map and sitting in the back, even though, as the one who had rented it, she was legally the only one who ought to be driving the vehicle. Academic hierarchy was friendly-faced and lightly worn, but no less strongly felt for that, and it rarely needed conscious thought, let alone articulation. Mona opened the back door and climbed in without anyone having to ask. It was one of those glorious autumn days that upstate New York dons to show on special occasions its fairest self. Magnificently attired in red and orange and yellow foliage, against a background of bottomless blue sky, the air sharp and crisp and just the littlest bit chill, a chill that stirs and freshens and invigorates, laced with the scent of sun and leaves and, somewhere, a slight trace of smoke. As they drove, they talked about their work, freely, the car providing as much privacy as the labs they usually hid their secrets in. Xiaoyan described with some excitement a series of experiments she was conducting, with Mona pitching in with additions and qualifications and corrections from the back, as best as she could while keeping one eye on the map. Jake, driving, peppered them with questions, 
The great disadvantage of working on a secret program is that you can't go to conferences and temper your ideas in the heat of others' scorn and thwarted ambition, and they consciously tried to make up for it by cross-examining each other fiercely. It would be many years before they each realized that there is a reason that that tempering, with the inevitable scraped egos and lasting bitterness it produced, was usually done by slight acquaintances and not close collaborators. The spot was an anonymous, empty field that must have belonged to somebody, although that somebody probably had never been there and maybe didn't even know of their possession. It was a corner, an out-of-the-way nook, in a planet already filling with people and their meanings and devices. This was precisely what made it so hard to get to. At the end, they left the dirt road and ran the van, jolting and swaying, over grass for a good quarter mile, until, cross-checking the surroundings with the information in the note, they concluded that they had reached the spot. It was as lonely and arbitrary as a place upon the crowding earth could be. But, of course, it needed to be somewhere that a large machine, encased within a boulder, could sit unmolested for four decades, and the storage room in the basement of Xiaoyan's lab that they used for tea mail was certainly not big enough. But yes, this was it. They were here. Jake spotted the smashed fragments of Seculite before he climbed out of the van, its dull, sooty black incongruous in the thick, verdant grass of the field. Ever the geochemist, he walked briskly over to it and stood staring in wonder among the boulders and fragments and pebbles, wreckage of a future explosion, bending to feel its strange smoothness lightly with his fingertips. Jesus fucking Christ, he said, aloud but to himself. How big is this thing going to be? Can you tell? Cheyenne asked, coming up after him. Jake stood and slowly turned a full circle, trying to see it all, and assemble it in his mind. Well, it will be hollowed out, he frowned, figuring, at least the size of the van, maybe a lot bigger. He picked a piece up, turned it between his fingers, set it carefully back down, and walked a few steps through the rubble. I didn't think there was this much saculite in one place anywhere in the world, he said. Was it here naturally? asked Mona who had paused her unloading of the van and hurried over once she heard conversation occurring. Jake frowned and slowly surveyed the landscape. No, he said slowly, I can't see it. Not here. And on top of the grass? No way. Which gives credence, said Xiaoyan, to the idea that the fragments are caused retrotemporally, rather than time machines' arrival being caused by their presence. But if they're caused retrotemporally, said Jake, what are we to do with those instances where we put the fragments there because we wanted a machine? Cheyenne shook her head. As with so much about time travel, they hardly knew how to begin to ask questions. We need collaborators, she said. Fresh eyes. Science is community, not secrets. Years later, when they all grew sick of hearing it, they would debate whether this was the first time she had said it. Jake had again knelt and was absorbed in the reality of the mineral, picking up a piece, turning it over in his hands, 
running his thumb gently across the sharp edge where some force had cracked it, and then placing it down to pick up another. Look at all this, he said with reverent wonder. Damn, but I wish I could bring a piece or two back to the lab. There won't be any pieces left, said Mona, and Jake, who knew that very well, cast her an irritated look, but said nothing. Cherianne nodded sympathetically. It has to feel like being taunted, she said. This mineral you want, above all, to study, laid out like a feast, and you are forbidden any of it. She paused. I wonder, she added, if you took a piece and put it in the van, wouldn't the machine necessarily materialize without it? This is amazing, said Jake, standing, but not worth messing around for. Kurt, to end the speculation, which it did. Xiaoyan and Mona went and unloaded the van, and let Jake commune with the rocks. They had finished, and were sprawled out on the grass by the time he walked back over to them, brushing the saculite dust off his pants. I can't believe they managed to make a machine this big and haul it to this godforsaken field, he said. We, said Xiaoyan. Hmm? We must have done that. We'll do that, however many years from now. Unless you think that at some point the secret gets out. Jake, taken aback, thought for a moment. I guess you're right. We must have done it. Must be going to do it. I guess we're going to need to figure out how to build a machine the size of a small truck. He laughed at the craziness of the thought. And figure out how to move it here. His arm opened to encompass the empty isolation of the field. A wind, still chill in the gradually warming autumn morning, made him shiver. They arranged their equipment as close to the predicted spot as they dared. Not like anything could go wrong, grumbled Jake as he lost an argument over safety. Then, all preparations made, the jittery energy of excitement giving way to the frustrating tedium of delay, they sat on the grass in the warm sun, and watched the empty space, waiting for the rock. You'd think we could have arranged to get here at the right time, what with having orchestrated this and all, said Mona, glancing up to track the sun's slow climb towards noon. Maybe there was some reason why we didn't, replied Xiaoyan, leaning back and picking up a spear of grass to stick between her teeth. What sort of reason? asked Mona. Something happened to cause... Xiaoyan, who couldn't imagine it any more than they, trailed off. Causality, like God, is dead, said Jake. That, too, they claimed in later years, once Jake had made it his pet phrase, had been first heard on this day in the field, although Xiaoyan would often dismissively snort and say that their memories were being swayed by the appeal of an origin story. 18. Eventually, as was to be expected, or as was inevitable, or as was contingently so due to some tragic flaw within their own natures, as their various philosophies implied, they broke down and, as was foretold, 
decided to test the barrier of zero second in the most direct way by sending someone beyond it with sufficient resources to return, a young graduate student new to Jake's lab named Hank. The downward time machine was, after a great deal of discussion of possibilities ranging from one hour to one century past the moment itself, set for a month beyond the unbreached limit. Even more important, of course, was the return, and no less than three full machines were readied for the traveler's trip back, situated in three different locations, and all carefully designed to be operated, if necessary, by the traveler alone. All three machines were built with a cockpit that could be sealed entirely from the inside, and which was already stocked with all the necessities that would be required for a journey back. Every person ever read in to the secret of time travel inevitably expressed surprise that a journey through time would itself take time. Of late, Jake Goldberg had been taking to asking them with a raised eyebrow whether or not planes existed in the third spatial dimension. And even though each time she heard him say it, Wu Xiaoyan would point out the inadequacy of the analogy, her frustration only increased both Jake's amusement in and his devotion to his response. Since one of the recurring speculations as to the nature of the ZS barrier was a dramatic disruption in the energy supply, each of the three machines was supplied with a self-contained energy source sufficient to power its return, a limitation that by itself held up their experiment for two years as the technology and finances of this were sorted out. The world will never know how much we contributed to the development of the electronic battery, said Jake disheartenedly. On the day itself, they were dispersed in three locations. Gnome, the head researcher in Jake's lab, was out in California. Mona, who of course played the same role in Xiaoyan's, was a hundred miles away from the lab in an obscure corner of upstate New York, rather like the one they had gone to years before while Jake, Xiaoyan, and Hank were all in the basement of the physics building, where Xiaoyan had years earlier secured extra space for private storage, locked by keys they alone possessed. Xiaoyan went obsessively over the checklist with Hank, while Jake checked the downward machine one last time. Then they called their farewells, the machine was sealed, and the steady, refrigeratorish hum of operations cut suddenly off. Hank was never seen again. 17. The day before zero second was also an incongruously glorious one, this time in the spring. The cloudless blue sky forbidding fears, the warm, abundant sunshine inviting thoughts of a lazy day idling in deck chairs, not impending apocalypse, although 40 years of accelerating climate change had taught them to look with suspicion on gorgeous days too early in the spring. The weather, of course, was forecast long before and came as no surprise. It was fortunate, however, for in the terse emails setting up the final discussion of the looming unknown, it became clear that there was no acceptable indoor venue for the gathering. In the old days, of course, they would meet in one of their two labs, either Wu Xiaoyan's or Jake Goldberg's. In those days, 
they were almost one lab, a franchise with two locations marking like hidden gateposts the crest of North Campus. Back then, both Xiaoyan and Jake were in the other's lab almost as often as their own, or so it seemed, dropping in almost daily to bounce an idea off the other or to strategize an administrative problem, or just to say hello. Once, sometime in the deep middle of those easy early days, Jake pointed out that Xiaoyan's lab had lousy instant coffee while his had an espresso machine, and deadpanned that she was always there in the mornings to steal his coffee. In response, Xiaoyan, whom Jake always described as having no sense of humor, a slander, of course, she could tell a good joke if she wished, she could distinctly remember having done so more than once, although, truth to tell, she did tend to take people's statements seriously, whether joking or no, something she described as treating them with respect, furrowed her brow and pointed out that, really, their funding was, all disguises aside, from the same source, but that if he wanted her to get a better espresso machine, or just agree not to take... At which point Jake interrupted her with his loud, horsey laugh, and said he was just teasing, and that she should really lighten up. She glanced at Gnome, Jake's elderly senior researcher, or so it seemed to her, still a bit young and prodigal, to be describable as middle-aged, who raised his eyebrows and nodded, as if to say, yes, it was clearly meant so, so she obligingly, if belatedly, laughed along with the rest, as she did with almost everyone. Her ex hated that. As if she'd gotten the joke and was willing to take it doubled as a joke upon herself. Many years later, Jake finally noticed that she no longer took their coffee, but he did not quite realize that she had never done so since his remark, not even once, and he never, in all the years after his belated half-realization, noticed the slight but significant hurt feelings that underlay the omission. In later years, as their rift widened, their labs became less welcoming, never off-limits, but clearly emanating a sense of being foreign territory, as a ball team must feel of their rival's stadium during away games. They begun to email or text when they wished to drop by, as you would when going to a friend's house, but not your own, and the occasions for doing so dwindled from daily to weekly to perhaps once a month. Without any conscious decision to do so, they found themselves meeting on neutral ground, often as not, in cafes, if they thought they could speak sufficiently guardedly to make it safe, or on walks along one of the gorge trails, and, of course, on the phone during the COVID crisis. For all we know, Zoom can be easily hacked, pointed out Xiaoyan. We'd better stick to phones, landlines, actually. It was years already since Mona joked that they'd be the last to have them. By the time of winter's sunder to an early thaw in the spring of 2031, it hadn't been much of a winter, but then none of them had lately, they each realized that they could not recall precisely when they had last set foot in the other's lab, and each thought, sadly, that they alone would note that, and each wondered if they should mention it, yet neither did. So for that final meeting, far too important to trust even to a phone call, let alone Skype, with stakes far too high to force themselves to speak in the coy phrasings that even the most private restaurant would necessitate, the idea of an outside meeting was finally mooted, once the day's warmth was reconfirmed.
and so they agreed to meet in the 51 corner. It was an odd spot on campus, in which a set of three stone benches had been placed to form the three sides of a square, just off a path with gravel between them, while behind was a thick copse of trees. The path ran down a strikingly steep hill, which leveled where the benches were before proceeding downward. While placing one bench halfway along to let hill climbers pause and rest made sense, it was never clear to any of them why the class of 1951 had felt a need to gift three benches to this remote spot. But it was perfect for their need, as if it had been the purpose of its construction. Were God and causality not dead? It was a remote and private place, far from any building, little traveled, with a clear view of anyone whose approach might force a moment of guarded speech or silence. And despite the advanced ages of two of the three of them, they knew that it would be warm enough for a long talk outside and would not rain. 16. Early in the morning on the day they went to meet the first time traveler, Wu Xiaoyan was so busy frantically calling to try and find a babysitter that Ming nearly smashed his head, falling off the dining room table. She hadn't seen him climb up, and was busy pleading with a former teacher at Ming's preschool when she heard his cackling laugh. That could mean anything. He laughed the same way when he picked up a piece of broccoli or threw one to the ground. So at first she wasn't concerned. Still, she leaned out from the kitchen, stretching the phone cord as far as it would go, just in time to see him stepping off the edge of the table, poised like the fool in a tarot deck. She was running before she was thinking, and caught him just above the floor. His knee still hit the ground, and he howled, but his head would have been cracked open if she had taken the time to say, hold on a second. She picked him up in her arms, shushing him, and stepped to the phone, only to find that the woman had hung up. As she found the neosporin and band-aids, Xiaoyan tried to remember whether she had to go, whether the note had said specifically that she was one of the three to meet the traveler. She wasn't sure, so she supposed she did have to go. Anyway, think about the fit Jake would throw if she failed to show up. But what about Ming? She cursed the daycare center's policy. He was fine, healthy enough to hurt himself badly, if not watched carefully. But the policy was 24 hours fever-free, and he'd still had one yesterday at lunchtime, so he wasn't eligible to go. She wondered if other parents just lied or ignored the rule. He was clearly recovered. They wouldn't know. But she never felt like she could allow herself that. Break the rules, and where were you? And this left her stuck. What would Jake say if she showed up with Ming in a car seat? He might understand. He and his wife were trying to get pregnant. Surely he must have seen enough in imagination's forecast that he could sympathize with such a sharp, sudden predicament. But it was different for a woman showing up to a work event with a kid in tow. Why hadn't she warned herself? She could have arranged this days ago, weeks ago, years. She had to have known. But she hadn't, so she couldn't, so she wouldn't. Time travel removes causation. The first time a note was sent back in time, Y became meaningless. T-U-V-W-X-Z. Time upended 
Vigilant Warning Xiaoyan, zero. No, why? Ming, recovered from his hurt knee, was racing around the loop made by the kitchen, the living room, the dining room, and the den, while Xiaoyan, envying those parents she'd met with local grandparents, frantically packed a diaper bag with a vague plan to rush into campus and hand him to someone, anyone, whom she could find at this hour, when the doorbell rang. Baffled, thinking perhaps it was some early rising salesman or missionary, she went to the door and yanked it open. It was known. He was wearing a windbreaker and jeans, holding a cup of coffee in a paper mug, and wearing, as always, one of those funny little caps that religious Jews wore. Hello, Professor Wu, said Noam. I understand you're looking for a babysitter. Xiao Yan just stared. She hadn't known that Noam knew where she lived. She hadn't even realized he knew she had a child. Her stomach churned with mixed emotions. She wanted to grab Ming and hand him over at once to this mysterious savior, while at the same time recoiling with suspicion and unease at this distant colleague showing up unannounced and uncalled for on her doorstep. It was help. It was intrusive. What? Who told you? She blurted out. Smiling, Nome pulled an envelope out of his pocket and handed it to her. Across the seal was written in Chinese her own name in her own handwriting. She tore it open. Inside was a note, also in her own hand. By the look of it, hastily scrawled on the sort of paper she left lying around her lab to absorb shed ideas, which just said, Nome is great with Ming. She looked up at him, and he grinned. I got one, too. She laughed, once again cursing her future self, although this time thanking her, too. She had sent help. She couldn't have sent advanced warning. Was she ever this inconsiderate of other people? Come in, she said. Let me introduce you to Xu Ming. She watched for a minute as Nome smiled at Ming's rapid-fire Mandarin, replying unruffled in English, and managed to negotiate finding and handing over one of those dry, sweet biscuits that Ming ate so many of. He did, indeed, look like he would be great with Ming. She started to explain about Ming's routine and what to pack in his diaper bag in case they wanted to go to the park, when Nome gently interrupted her. We're fine here, said Nome. Really, go meet the time traveler. You'll have to tell me all about it when you get back. Xiaoyan thanked him, grabbed her coat and car keys, and dashed outside to go find out why they had gone to the effort and expense of sending back not a message, but a traveler. Fifteen. Of course they sent messages. Jake himself sent at least a dozen, two or three in the immediate wake of the last traveler's return, the rest at scattered times over the next few decades. He sent them to different points in the future, half an hour after zero seconds, a month after, two years after, even when he could afford it, one to a full century later. He sent them from different locations in space, from the room beneath the lab which contained most of their T-mail devices, from his own basement, and from another building on campus that he thought would be undisturbed. He sent one from the field where the first traveler had returned, the vast, rock-encased vessel still there, with the traveler, 
younger and older than now, untouchable inside it. He scattered them about, sending one from California and one from northern Canada, one from Israel and one from Finland. As time wore on and the technology grew more streamlined and their funding grew more bountiful, he began making larger vessels, which themselves contained smaller ones and batteries to operate them with, along with notes addressed to any stranger that might find them, tersely explaining about the existence of time travel and pleading for whomever had found the enclosed time capsule to send word back within it. He even toyed, at first jokingly, but then increasingly seriously, with adding a reward of some sort, a few thousand dollars, with more promise if a reply was received. And Jake was the one who thought that the prospect was hopeless, that time's known fixity left them no wiggle room whatsoever, and that rather than try to understand what was coming, they ought to do their research with the careful determination and reckless curiosity of the condemned. 14. There was nothing to announce the arrival, no sensory impression of motion, no blurred movement, nor the onrushing of air that one might expect if a large thing were to shove something aside, like Archimedes in his bath. The shattered pieces of the cracked boulder were strewn across the field, and then they weren't, and at the center of where they had been stood a gigantic saculite boulder larger than a school bus. Mona, who was standing to stretch and had mindlessly ambled forward and thus was only a few feet from its edge, started back with a gasp. It looked like a huge black wall materialized before her, alien in the living field. Before any of them could say anything, however, they heard a weak cry from the far side of the rock. All three ran around. There, sprawled out on the grass, as if in imitation of the rock fragments that, assembling, had shoved it aside, were the dissembled components of a machine, with a man lying sprawled on the grass among them. Climbing out of a backwards time-traveling machine is, strictly speaking, impossible. In the half-second which it might take you to swing your legs out and stand, as you would exit a car, you overlap with the machine's backwards journey. It should be, as it will be, soon enough, already there, sealed and possessed of its cargo. The disembarkation had to be instantaneous, and somehow it was, although none of them had yet figured out, nor would in all the decades to come, quite how it worked. A few years after the arrival, Xiaoyan would become obsessed with this question, and, setting up and sending back numerous small machines for micro-jumps of a minute, filmed the process in minute detail. Even with the best recordings she could make, however, it appeared, unlike time travel itself, to take no time at all. Between two frames of film, the fragments of rock would be replaced with a whole one. She could not say they assembled, as assembly is a process that occurs in time and involves movement through space, while its contents were shoved aside in a random direction, although never into another object, enclosing it in a five-sided box, ensured an arrival in the open direction. The three rushed over to the man. He was middle-aged, Chinese, at least by descent, and he was thin and trembling. Mona and Xiaoyan knelt beside him and helped him sit up. 
Are you all right? asked Xiaoyan. He looked pale. The man looked at her with infinite surprise, as if he could not believe in the existence of another human being, and then slowly nodded. A long time in confinement, that's all. His accent was American. How long were you in this? asked Jake. Twenty-nine beta days, the man said. Give or take a few hours. He rolled his head around to stretch his neck. Jake whistled in astonishment. When do you come from? he asked. Let's give him a minute, said Xiaoyan. I'm all right, said the man. I'm going to try to stand. Mona and Xiaoyan took his elbows and helped him up. He stood, teetered for a second, and then found his footing. Disembarkation is really strange, he said. One second you're sitting there. He trailed off. Turning to Xiaoyan, he put his hand on hers, which was still on his elbow. Let me try to walk. Xiaoyan and Mona stepped back and he walked tentatively forward a few steps. "'How do you feel?' asked Xiaoyan. "'A little dizzy,' the man said. "'Just from sitting for so long, there wasn't really room to move.' "'But it's so big,' said Mona. "'Think about it, Mona,' he replied. He stretched his arms as he spoke, twirling them, crossing them before him, and moving his elbow back. "'It's not just the actual machinery. I'm cut off in there, an absolute seal.' Every molecule of oxygen has to be stored. Power, heat, water. It takes a lot of space. Mona had barely heard anything past her name. You know me? she asked. At that, the man smiled. I do, and I will, he said. You forget, I'm part of your research group. Jake shook his head in wonder. I hadn't thought, but of course. Did you bring water? asked the man. I haven't had a proper bath in a month. Jake walked around to the other side of the giant boulder, to where their equipment, carefully placed for an arrival on the wrong side, still was, and then returned, lugging a five-gallon jug and a sponge. The man unselfconsciously stripped before them. Mona, at least, turned politely the other way. Naked in the chill fall air, he began to give himself a sponge bath. We have to get all this into the van. Jake said, waving at the machine parts. Maybe we should start? So as the man cleaned himself, Mona went and drove around the huge rock. Somewhere, deep inside it, the man now cleaning himself also was, sitting, waiting, traveling, readying himself to be ejected from the time capsule that enclosed him. Then the three temporal natives began loading the parts of the machine into the back of the van. Eventually the man dressed in clean clothes from his suitcase, came over to help them. "'What's your name?' asked Jake. The man shook his head. "'Confirmation procedure first, he said. "'What?' asked Mona. "'This is the first time,' the man said, "'but not the last. We have a procedure.' "'Other people travel?' asked Xiaoyan, astonished. "'Not just messages? You're not the only one?' "'I am not,' he said. "'But we weren't always here to witness the traveler's arrival.' When someone claims to come from the future, we have to test it. Imagine what someone could do claiming to be from the future if they weren't. Test it how? asked Jake. You brought paper and an envelope? It was produced. The man said, One of you goes somewhere where I can't see you. He gestured at the rock, its alien black bulk, the obvious obscurant in the open field. Then write something on the paper, anything, but something spontaneous, not something you'd normally write a few random words, or just numbers. Then seal it in the envelope and put it away. 
Come back and ask me what you wrote. I'll know, because I saw it in the future. If I didn't know... Has anyone ever failed the test? asked Xiaoyan. The man shrugged, but gave no answer. I'll do it, said Jake. He took a piece of paper and envelope and disappeared for a moment, his hand grazing the enormous boulder in idle awe as he went. After a minute, he returned from the other direction. No envelope was visible. Well, he said. The man said promptly, You wrote, Time will say nothing but I told you so. W. H. Auden. He smiled. Your handwriting is terrible. Jake gave a low whistle. If it's a magic trick, it's a good one. So can you tell us your name now? asked Mona. And when you're from? The man nodded slowly and then looked Xiaoyan straight in the eye. My name is Shu Ming, he said. Xiaoyan brought her hands up to her mouth. Ming, she asked in a small voice. He smiled, affection breaking out over his face like a dam suddenly giving way to the pressure of years. Ma Huo Hui Lai La, he said. I'm back, Mom. And Xiaoyan sat heavily down on the grass and sobbed. 13. Shortly after they first met, neither was able to remember precisely when, Xiaoyan and Jake agreed to spend the New Year's Eve of the new millennium together. It began as a running joke, but since Xiaoyan took everything seriously, as the years passed, they slid into actually planning to do it, which meant, they discovered a few years later, that they had to do it twice, since they couldn't agree on when that was. Come on, the numbers all change with 2,000, argued Jake. Who cares about a single digit? The millennium starts on January 1st, 2001, replied Xiaoyan firmly. You know that. For heaven's sake, it's your calendar. Jake raised his hand to his breast in mock affront. Not ours, madame. That is the Goyesha calendar. According to ours, it is the year 5,756 since the creation of the world. I meant it's the Western calendar, said Xiaoyan. Jake barked with laughter, which, as always, made Xiaoyan nervous, never quite sure what was funny, nor whether she was being laughed with or at. But they agreed they would when the relevant years rolled around do it twice. For the first start of the new millennium, they had dinner. Xiaoyan cooked while Jake brought wine and dessert. Ming, then eleven, was tasked with watching Jake's daughter Tikva, who was seven. Most eleven-year-old boys would not relish an evening wasted babysitting a seven-year-old girl, but since this meant being allowed to watch far more television than he was usually permitted, he acceded gracefully. Once the blare of the television guarded against overhearing, Jake, keeping his voice low but not whispering, asked Xiaoyan, Does he know? Xiaoyan shook her head. I wondered recently if I should have told him a long time ago. You know, the way you're supposed to with adoptions. Just have it always assumed, mentioned casually, a background fact about the world. So there's no traumatic moment of revelation, she sighed. Too late now. Not to mention the minor fact that the existence of adoption as a process, the fact of its scientific possibility, is not a closely guarded secret, which might be a problem were toddlers not known for their self-control and their ability to keep secrets. Yes, of course, that was an issue, too. She glanced towards the den's closed door. But I think I will need to tell him soon. You could ask Lao Shu when he was told, Jake said. 
The entire research group had adopted the Chinese nickname for older relatives, Old Shu, for the elder Returning Ming, in order to distinguish him from the young boy, who is either Xiao Ming, Young Ming, or just Ming. Xiaoyan shook her head. Lao Shu never answers those questions, she said. In fact, he barely speaks to me at all. He said he doesn't want to interfere, or can't, because he didn't. Whatever. Jake, who knew this very well, made a sympathetic face. We can't even imagine being grown up when we are children, said Xiaoyan. How do I tell him? At least you know he'll be okay, Jake said. Tikva will be only thirty-nine at zero second. For all we know, the world ends at that instant, in the prime of her life. Xiaoyan shook her head. We have no reason to suspect that. Not at all, she said. We have no grounds to assume it's false either, Jake replied. The Cold War wasn't that long ago, said Xiaoyan. You remember it. The idea that the world might end at any moment isn't new. But in this case, said Jake, we know something happens, something that stops us. We just don't know what. Xiaoyan didn't reply. She thought that this worry was trauma, brought on by the swift death of Jake's wife, Tikva's mother, two and a half years before, consumed by cancer, eleven terrible weeks from hail to grave. But the one time she hinted that his worries were motivated by trauma, Jake got angry, as if she were questioning his scientific judgment. We don't know anything, said Xiaoyan. That's all. That's everything, replied Jake. 12. I come from zero second, said the older Ming. Oddly enough, in later years, when they compared notes, although all three remembered the conversation roughly the same as far as what was said went, they could not agree where, and thus precisely when, it had taken place. Xiaoyan remembered the four of them sitting on the grass in the sun, only metaphorically in the shadow of the vast black thing that contained, unquestionably and unimaginably, a third extant copy of her son. Jake, on the other hand, remembered them driving in the van, himself behind the wheel, Ming beside him, and Xiaoyan and Mona in the back. Whereas Mona thought they had waited until they were back in Xiaoyan's lab, and although her memory of the four of them flanking the four sides of the scratched rectangular metal table in the entry room was firm, even she admitted that it seemed unlikely they would have waited the entire drive back before discussing it. As for the time traveler, not yet dubbed Lao Shu, still just Ming, but a strange, older Ming, the ghost of years yet to come, he refused to clarify the past, just as he would so often refuse to clarify the future. What's zero second? asked Mona, after a long pause, unsure whether it might be simply a technical term that she didn't know, and relieved when she saw in the faces of the two senior researchers flanking the table that they didn't know either. Zero second, said Ming, is the moment beyond which we don't know the future, don't know anything about the future. We've got no messages and no travelers from later than then. When is that? asked Jake, casting a glance to his right before snapping his eyes back to the road. Twenty-thirty-one, the man replied. Forty years. Xiaoyan closed her eyes and felt the breeze briefly blow unimpeded across the autumn grass to the east of the rock, before it shifted back and they were again in the boulder's lee. The older Ming was forty-three, older than she was. She shivered in the warm sun. But what makes that different than any other time? One of them asked. 
each of them in their own recounting, Ming shrugged. That's just it. We don't know. We can't know. About the next forty years, we know a lot. All of us, I mean, not just me. You've already learned some from messages, and of course you'll get more. I'm not saying Gmail ever becomes a routine thing, but it's more common than I think you anticipate. And other travelers. Wait, there are other travelers? asked Mona, staring at him across the table. He said that before, muttered Jake. Ming smiled at her, the eternal smile of the young at the foolishness of their elders. Oh, yes, he said. Are you going back? asked Xiaoyan. No, Ming said. Xiaoyan let that shudder pass through her, an afterquake which would have leveled her mind's buildings had there been any left standing. But what is different about 2031? Like I was saying, we don't know. Things certainly weren't peachy when I left. Things aren't better in the future? asked Mona. Ming just gave a derisive, incredulous snort, and then continued. But they aren't so bad that there's some imminent crisis I can see shutting us down. So presumably there is some localized reason, localized to the temporal research group, I mean, that point in organizational space. But we don't know what it is. To know, we'd need to get information from past the event. Besides that, the only way to know what's after that point is to live through it. We all need to wait 40 years for that. 2031, said Xiaoyan, more to herself than to any of the rest of them. On April 4th, added Ming, at 3.56 in the afternoon. What were things like when you left? asked the tale's narrator, whomever that is in this telling. Ming shook his head in refusal. I'm going to tell you a few things, but only a few things. If I want you to know, I'll tell you. Otherwise, don't bother asking. Then why are you here? asked Jake. Ming grinned. You know what you always say, Uncle Jake, he replied. Causality, like God, is dead. As far as Jake could later remember, that was the first time he had ever heard that. 11. Xiaoyan arrived at the 51 benches early, partly to prevent Jake from making some comment about her being always late. Years before, he would have been joking, but the joking had over the decades fermented into genuine complaint but also partly because she thought there was some chance that Lao Shu would be there. When she crested the last rise and saw the group of benches at which they had agreed to meet, the only person she saw was her familiar son Xiao Ming, although the little made her smile now that he was in his early forties, sitting on the far bench looking at his phone. He glanced up, smiled, and stuck his phone in his pocket. Ma Huo Wei Laila, he said to her, as though he were still a teenager home from school instead of come up from the city, just as he would say again so many years ago. She had never told him that that was what he, as Lao Shu, had first said to her that other day, decades before, the very first time he had ever said it to her. First, that is, in his beta time, not in hers, nor in Alpha time, a school kid coming home one afternoon and calling out, Without pausing his walk to the kitchen, she had gasped and dropped a teacup to shatter on the floor. This time, she just smiled sadly and gave him a hug. You're early, he said. She said, I don't want to deal with Jake's bitching and moaning, today of all days. She breathed in and out. Besides, I was hoping that, that Lao Shu might be here. Ming shook his head. 
He didn't say he was going to be. You spoke to him recently? Ming nodded. We speak from time to time. Rarely. But we met a few days ago so he could give me everything I need to do what he's done. What I'm going to do. Xiao Yan felt a flush of annoyance. He couldn't call her? Just say goodbye? Of course, she understood why he had to give his younger self instructions. But still... Here comes Uncle Jake, said Ming. They were silent as Jake came slowly down the hill and sat himself on the free bench. Xiao Ming, he said, nodding to the middle-aged man he still thought of as a young boy. Xiao Yan. They sat in silence for a moment. Jake turned to Ming and said, You told us forty years ago that when this day came, we wouldn't know anything more about what caused zero second than we did back then. I couldn't quite believe it. Yet of course you were right. Xiaoyan said, But we do know more. Jake rolled his eyes. We don't have time for metaphysics today, he said. We don't have time for anything else, Xiaoyan replied. I have one more day in the 21st century, said Ming. Are you really going to spend it having this argument again? The wind prompted the trees behind them to groan. You both know what I think, said Xiaoyan. We've been over this, said Jake. We made a promise. A promise to people who are long gone, said Xiaoyan. A promise that was made without the specter of zero second looming before us. We need help. We've needed help for forty years. It's time we ask for it. And it can be that that causes zero second. Jake rolled his eyes. Its cause will be its cause, he said. It's delusional to think we can control what will be. We still need to decide what to do, said Xiaoyan. So let's ask for help, whatever the cause. It's too dangerous. A public announcement? Who knows what that might cause? Who might get a hold of a machine at some point in the infinite future and come back to tomorrow? Oh, so now you think we have some control? sneered Xiaoyan. There's another possibility, said Ming. The two senior researchers turned to look at him, sitting between and behind them on the central bench. You two have been over this. We know all the arguments. Ma wants to go public. Uncle Jake wants to go to the government. Both his elders began to interrupt. Ming held up a hand to forestall them. Forget the metaphysics for now. Whether we have control or not, we have to decide what to do in ignorance. So we have to act as if we have control, whatever the reality. Again, the other two began to speak. Again, Ming uncharacteristically cut them off. But there's a third option for what to do. He paused, as if to give them leave to interrupt. What is it? asked Jake. We, you, could simply stop. Both researchers frowned. What do you mean? asked Xiaoyan. Stop what? asked Jake, at almost the same time. You're both well past retirement age, said Ming. You could both retire. You could announce that tomorrow. Have a party to celebrate your careers, make a few boring speeches, and go home. Everyone else in the lab could find another job. Take this secret program and just stop. Decide that the research has run its course, you've learned what there is to learn, and just quit. He looked in the stunned faces of his elders, and then at the waiting sky. Maybe, he said, maybe tomorrow isn't the end of anything but this. 10. Eventually Jake, in the field or the lab or the car, 
interrupted that initial speculation about zero second that Xiaoyan and Mona had fallen into, one of the wild scrimmages of ideas that made them such good lab partners for so long. You didn't come back yourself just to tell us this, he said to Ming. Why send a person? Why not just a message? Why? Ming grinned and shrugged, a gesture of acknowledgement at Jake's failure to live by his own denial of causality. I'm not sure a message would have been believed, but maybe that's not why. Maybe my coming back creates zero second. I don't know. I don't know if the question is even meaningful. All I can tell you is what I'm going to do. I'm arranging your funding. Funding? asked Xiaoyan, puzzled. But we have... The Rooker grant will dry up soon, Ming said. It's going to shut down. As for everything else... The dual track is over. Both of you are going to focus on just time travel for the next four decades. To do that, you'll need grants that don't look into the subject matter you're researching. So I'm here to found them, fund them, and make them look real enough to go unnoticed by Cornell bureaucrats and tax auditors. Actually, I'm going to make them real. It's the easiest way to fake it. I'll fund a bunch of other research, too, across the country, just to provide cover. He shrugged. It'll support some good work. But the point is that now you'll have grants to fund time travel research without having to tell anyone about it. We won't have to do grant applications anymore, asked Mona eagerly. Ming laughed. I'm afraid some miracles are beyond even time travel, he said. You still need to do them because we need a paper trail for the university, the IRS, for everything. But maybe they'll be easier when you know in advance you'll get the funding. A guaranteed grant can be scrawled with a song in the heart. Mona's face made it clear that she didn't think so. Where will you get the money? asked Jake. When you know the future, Ming replied, it's easy to make money, especially in an economy that's basically a giant casino. I'm going to be placing sure thing bets. The only tricky part is staying off everyone's radar. But of course, I have really detailed instructions. So I know that I'll pull it off. You'll get funding and no IRS visits for 40 years. But, said Xiaoyan, they all turned to her, in the field, in the car, in the lab, listened to the sound of the birds, the engine, the buzz of fluorescent lights. But for what? We do the research and learn, work for forty years, just to run into a blank wall? Ming shrugged and said nothing. Jake laughed and said, That's what science is, right? We learn as much as we can before hitting a blank wall. Usually that's death, and we don't get a forty-year warning. Xiaoyan, as usual, considered Jake's light words gravely. No, she said. Usually it's part of a process, taking part in an enterprise that's larger than yourself, and that continues after you die. But this is just us, and then it ends? It's like planting a harvest to rot in the fields. It sounds like we don't know if it will rot or not, said Mona. I mean... If we don't know what will happen, we don't know if anything will come of it. Which is what science always is, said Jake. Xiaoyan was not satisfied. She turned to this man, her son, older than she, aged in light uncast, and asked him, Does it seem like, does it seem like things might be built on? I mean, from what you know of where we'll be then? Ming shrugged again. Who knows, he said. I... I know, of course. I'm writing the story. I, the omniscient third-person narrator, 
never allowed to slip before the curtain and address the audience directly. You, reading it, like to forget I'm here. You like to pretend the story tells itself. No, I need it. And usually I make it easy and step back, show, don't tell, don't say a word, except passim. So you can ignore me, but I'm always here. Not me, me, but some me. In everything you read, in everything you've ever read, the author. They say I'm dead, but I made them say that. It's all a plot, a lie, a trick, a retcon. But you fall for it and forget me. Bob Wilson did not see the circle grow, you read, and don't think to ask what type of pen wrote the words, what the color of the paper was, or whether it jammed in the typewriter. But once time travel enters the picture, it's hard not to wonder about me. Not me, me, but the me of the real world, the actual narrator. God or fate or coincidence that would be called chance were there any randomness to it all. They had to wonder, don't you think? Xiaoyan, Jake, Ming, living their lives, twice in Ming's case, running towards the blankest of blank walls. You probably don't have much sympathy for them, you in the supposedly real world, who live before this wall all the time. But try, for all that the future is an omnipresent blank, it's not omnipotent. You do catch glimpses, as if through rear-view mirrors. You imagine events, make plans, dread occasions coming up, and use those radar pings to steer blind through the onrushing unknown. They had none of those. Oh, they had plans, or at least thoughts, but none that could be trusted. Something was going to happen, something big, something to make all plans truly tentative, and they couldn't know. So forget me if you like, please, but they won't. They'll say, all three of them, that they think it's just chance, but they'll still wonder whenever a breath of wind in the still of the night awakens them. They'll remember me, the I, the narrator, and I'm here. If you ask Jake, he'd know the old Jewish saying, man plans, God laughs. I'm laughing. Maybe Xiaoyan is right to be suspicious of humor and levity. Maybe all laughter is mocking. 9. Ming had known, as he offered it, that he would have to wait 40 years to see if his suggestion was accepted. His older self, Lao Xu, had told him as much years ago. I have some hopes that they'll see reason, Lao Xu had said in one of their infrequent meetings. I planted the seed in their minds. They denied it, but I have reason to hope they're still thinking about it. I mean, they did, between our conversation and the moment when I returned. Maybe Uncle Jake will do the right thing. And Ma, he, Xiaoming, had added. Lao Xu had slowly nodded. I'm less worried about her, he said. Then he looked up at his younger self. We'll find out, he said. And now here Ming was, seeing this played out. Neither his mother nor the man he had always called Uncle Jake really reacted to what he had said, rather falling back into their habitual bickering. Xiaoyan shook her head in presumptive disbelief. 
You want to go to the government, to this government. She waved about, as if the manicured lawns and ruler-straight foreign trees of the campus somehow showed the wreckage of the American experiment, and tell them the most dangerous secret in the world. It's not dangerous, said Jake. Young and Harris thought it was decades ago, sure, which is how this whole... He waved his hand in a tight circle that meant research program, secret, dilemma, and a thousand other things, just as a pointing finger's invisible rays will hit everything in a city in an instant. Got started, but we know more now. We know nothing can be changed. So whatever's happened has already happened. Either they came back or they didn't. Either way, we shouldn't claim a monopoly on information that could change the world. It's not right. That much we agree on, said Xiaoyan. But I don't think the American government is the right body to hold this power. I hate them as much as you do, said Jake. You know that. But they are our representatives. They don't represent me, said Xiaoyan, or you either. You know that. What are you suggesting, Ma? asked Ming. Xiaoyan shut her eyes for just a moment. You know what I believe. We do have freedom to operate within the scope of our ignorance. And the fact that we don't know anything about any day after tomorrow is not an unknown threat. It's a gift. Ignorance is power. A blank page is freedom. It means we can decide what to do. We can decide what happens. What it is that will happen, has happened. Jake snorted. Xiaoyan, ignoring him, continued. Whatever happens tomorrow will be due to what we do today. And that we shouldn't be the U.S. president or the goddamn CIA or anything. It should be all of us, everyone, the whole human race. Oh, yes. Tell the whole world about the most dangerous thing conceivable, said Jake. You just said it wasn't dangerous, Xiaoyan snapped. God knows what would be done with it. With billions of people thinking about it, who knows what someone might come up with. Maybe zero second is zero second because of what somebody comes even farther back to do. I thought you said we didn't have a choice. Our choice is determined, said Jake, but we still have to make it. The conversation died, as did the wind, and it seemed as if the world held its breath. I've already made the choice, said Xiaoyan, and not in some bullshit, everything's already happened sort of way. I set things in motion. And the two men blinked at her. Eight. Friendships die in all the manifold ways that anything human dies. They crash suddenly in a fiery explosion. They are murdered by others, whether with deliberate cold malice or as unnoticed collateral damage. They are struck by sudden cancer and wither in the space of a few agonizing months. They simply decline and fade with age. The friendship of Wu Xiaoyan and Jake Goldberg looked as if it had simply withered with age, but, Jake thought, it was not true. It was poisoned, not by any person or agent with malice, but through build-up of environmental toxins. It wasn't even just them, Jake thought. Time travel curtailed friendships. It did it literally, of course, out of time, out of friends. A stranger in a strange time. Lao Xu had said that to him once, bitterly, a brief glimpse into the experience of retro-temporal living. But it curdled friendships in another way, too. 
It was a truth, it was news that should shake the world. For him, once found, it guided all his thoughts from afar, pulled them towards it, an intellectual Jupiter. Since he had learned of it, he had never given a truthful answer to the question, what's up, save to his handful of close colleagues. The secret sat, armor, between him and life. He had thought, perhaps, to tell his wife, but then decided, in a fit of self-denial, not to after all. Nor had he told his daughter. She had gone through life without really knowing the work that consumed him, that woke him shivering in the empty night hours, that made him miss school recitals and parent weekends. The few times she had pressed him to tell her, really tell her, about his work, he had had to not lie, but deliberately bore her, droning on about the chemical properties of rock, without ever telling her why saculite was different from any other mineral, that it could somehow hold back the waves of time, that it was unshatterably dense not in three dimensions, but four. He sketched for her equations and omitted the fire that made them burn his mind. She quickly lost the threads, both of what he was saying and why she should care, and left him alone. In the performance of this dance that occurred early in her teenage years, she muttered that he was a rock collector and she would let him get back to his pet rocks. He felt his eyes brim that time, but only after the door closed, leaving him in solitude. So he found himself jealous of Wu Xiaoyan and Xu Ming. He did not hold them responsible, of course. The notion of responsibility was collateral damage of causation's demise. But since that knowledge, abstract, brittle, thin, was weak besides the spinal certainty inlaid by eons of evolution, while he may have disdained jealousy's anger, he felt it nonetheless. 7. It was dark by the time Mona dropped them at the parking lot at which the day had begun, and Jake, perhaps hearing the winged chariot at his back more loudly than before, got quickly in his car and drove off, leaving the young mother and her middle-aged son standing together by her car. Xiaoyan looked at this man, older than her, and said shyly, Do you need a ride? Do you want to come to my house? To see Ming? I mean, Ming... Xiao Ming, the man replied. I understand. You'll call me Lao Shu. Xiaoyan shook a disbelieving head, amazed at what life had pulled her into. Outside, in the shadowed light, some sort of creature scurried past on errands of its own. I'm not going to see Xiao Ming, he said, which is probably a good thing. But I'll come with you. He, I, will be asleep by the time we get there. You remember that? asked Xiaoyan, amazed. She opened her door and hit the button to unlock the others. Ming laughed. I think I do, but that's probably just my memory making up what it thinks it knows. What I do remember is that Lao Shu, not me, well, not me yet, he told me when we met to go over everything a few days before zero second, and he remembered because he made a note of it, which now I'll remember to do. When they got to the house, they entered quietly and found Nome sitting at their kitchen table, reading the morning newspaper. Hi, Professor Wu, he said, and Lao Shu, long time no see. Xiao Yan looked from one to the other. How did you... You didn't tell her? asked Ming, raising an eyebrow. Nome shrugged. I told you I wasn't the only time traveler, Ming said to his mother. Xiao Yan opened her mouth and then covered it, sitting heavily down. After a long minute, she asked, why didn't you tell me? Because I knew I didn't. 
replied Noom. Tamada, cursed Xiaoyan. When did you get back? Just before I joined Jake's lab, said Noom. You told him? I had to, to get him to hire me. My degree hasn't been granted yet, alpha time. Bastard should have told me. It wasn't his choice, Ma, said Ming. Don't call me that, snapped Xiaoyan, instantly regretting the words as soon as they were out of her mouth. Okay, said Ming, mildly. You came back to help run Jake's lab. Noam shrugged. My boss tells me that causality is as dead as God, he replied. I came back, that's all. But you're a believer, said Ming, or any way you will be. He's wrong about God, said Noam, but not causality. There is no why. You could say that I came back to be Xiao Ming's babysitter, and that I just work for Jake to pay the bills. You babysit again? asked Xiaoyan. Noam nodded. Her eyes, searching, found the elder Ming's face. He does from time to time, said Ming. There was a long moment of silence. Finally, Noam stood. I should go. Let you two talk a bit. Hold on, said Xiaoyan, reaching for her purse. I got out cash yesterday. Keep it, said Noam. But... Really, he said. You get your money from the same place I do, the Rucher. If I need more, I can just take it. Xiaoyan opened her mouth, several objections contending for priority. But before she could sort out which to articulate, Noam continued. Anyway, it was fun. Xiao Ming is a sweet kid. He grinned at Ming. Unlike his older counterpart. Cranky bastard, said Ming. But Xiaoyan could see he was grinning too. Then, after a moment, his face became serious. And he said to Noam, I, I, that is, I understand, said Noam. Another time, then, so to speak. The two of them shook hands. Then Noam turned to her. Goodbye, Professor Wu, he said. Call me Xiaoyan, she said, also taking his hand. Six. Knowing something isn't eternal, that it will someday end, is a wholly different thing than knowing when precisely it will end. It shouldn't be. Formally, they were equivalent. What the apparent disjuncture meant was that the mind wasn't fully grasping the truth of the undated but certain termination. But the mind was a poor map to reality, and that it shouldn't be different didn't mean it wasn't. The list of things she knew would end was itself endless. Her life, Ming's life, the United States, China, the sun, the galaxy, every last oxygen molecule there was, all would perish. Somehow that didn't faze her. But April 4th, 2031, that sounded a knell. Never mind that it was far longer than she could have counted upon. If asked to guess early in her career, she wouldn't have felt confident in going that long. She'd be, yes, 75. She could have retired earlier than that. It didn't matter. The knowledge pressed her squeezed the air out of her lungs, made her feel like she was desperately trying to hold in her arms a pile of sand. It was like being given a death sentence. No, that's silly. It's the opposite, right? She had just been assured she will live until 75. Maybe beyond, maybe not, but at least until then. She would be alive on April 4th, 2031 at 3.56 in the afternoon. She had a guarantee of that. Who else got such a thing? She shuddered, put her head down on the table, feeling crushed by the knowledge, by the past. She had sometimes thought, as who has not, that she had at least an escape route, an exit, 
that if the weary burden of living became too much, she could slough it off with a bare bodkin, or, less dramatically, a handful of pills. Death, always a terror, was also a promise. Now both were gone. That she knew it would end didn't mean she didn't have to walk through it, hour by hour, day by day, ache by ache. In fact, of course, it meant she did. She had to reach that end. No escape. It was done, over, finished. The vase broken, the words said. Except for the future, not the past. Five. Ma, I have to leave now, said Ming. Nome had left not long before. Where are you going? Where are you going to stay? asked Xiaoyan. I am going down to the city, Ming replied. Tomorrow. They sat in silence for a while, as Xiaoyan tried desperately to think of something, anything, to keep this stranger, her son, with her a few moments longer. There were so many questions, yet her mind was blank. She heard herself saying stupidly, So we lose the Rucher. The Rucher never existed, Ming replied. We set that up, too. It only funds us. We set up the Rucher? asked Xiaoyan, astonished. Nome did, said Ming, as soon as he first got back. But it was always meant as a temporary thing. Potemkin. It's a lot easier to go undetected before Google and the web. Before what? Ming laughed as though caught in a faux pas. You'll find out. In due time. The point is, we needed someone full-time on it now. That's why I came back. Assuming why means anything. Anyway, it's what I'm going to be doing. Nome has other stuff to do. Like babysit you? Ming smiled, among other things. He stood to go. Xiaoyan clutched at his arm. Stay here tonight, she said. There's the couch. I can't, said Ming. I mean, I don't. I didn't. But where are you going to stay tonight? With Nome. We arranged it just before sh Well, let's just say before he came back. Just for tonight? He shook his head. I don't. He sat again and breathed heavily in and out. Ma, this is hard, but I don't see you much. Ming! I'm sorry, he said, but I, older me, wasn't around when I was growing up. Which is good, I think. Interacting with your time-shifted self, it's not easy. And you need to be focused on me, the me that needs you. This... He waved at them, at the kitchen table between them. This is a bonus, an afterlife visit, a gift for each of us. You get to see who I will become. I get to see my mother as she was. Xiaoyan looked at her hands. Um, do I die before you leave? she asked. Ming's heart lurched, but all he said was, You and Uncle Jake, and me, me as I am now, I mean, for me it happened a month ago. We meet on April 3rd, 2031, to try one last time to figure out what's going to happen at zero second. You and Uncle Jake are both fine, and then I leave the next day, and after that, who knows? Xiao Yan brushed away the bud of a tear. Ming held her hands. I get to be with you, and be with you a lot, for forty years, and the you I knew, that was the old you, you as an older woman. I said goodbye to her at forty-three, which is a hard age to say goodbye to a parent, but not an uncommon one. You still have me, 
Xiaomi. I'm asleep in that room. This, he waved between the two of them. Like I said, it's a gift, but that's all. I'm not saying I'll never see you again. I will a few times, but I won't see you much. It won't be an ongoing relationship. When I need to interact with the project, I will go through Uncle Jake. That's cruel, said Xiaoyan. It would be, replied Ming, if I had any choice in the matter. Five minutes later, she stood at the door and watched as he walked off into the dark Ithaca night, where the glorious autumn day had faded into cold and drizzle and soggy leaves on the ground. He walked away, never looking back, until he became indistinguishable from the other shadows, and she was looking longingly at an empty streetscape. 4. The meeting had broken up inconclusively. Ming found himself surprised that it had. He had told himself that it promised to change everything, but what that meant he didn't know. They plotted strategy, debated tactics, hurled metaphysics and laws, but against the onrushing tidal wall of ignorance, their frustrations shattered with a mocking sound. He returned with his mother to the house they had lived in his whole life, the one his father had selected as Wu Xiaoyan was absorbed in planning her academic future. In retrospect, Ming was surprised that she had not moved after the divorce, but at the time, of course, he had just thought it was where they lived and knew only that his father was gone. Stay tonight, she said, after he had taken her arm as she sat in her familiar kitchen chair. I should, he began. Forty years ago, she interrupted. That is, a month from now, in your beta time, you refuse to stay, and then I hardly see you for four decades. But you're not Lao Shu yet. Tonight, you're still Xiao Ming. Ming, feeling his middle age weigh heavily on him, couldn't help but smile at this. And you can stay one last night in your own house. Ming sat, silently conceding. Xiao Yan rose and made tea, speaking only to refuse his offers to do it for her, or to help. They sat and drank together, not speaking until each had had their cup refilled. You'll die to me tomorrow, said Xiao Yan at length. Ming felt the cup warm between his hands. Maybe not, he said. All we know is that you haven't had much contact with Lao Shu in the past decades. But he's still doing well. Maybe, if you retire, you and he can spend some real time together. You and I. Forty years from now for me, but tomorrow for you. He smiled. We'll be the same age then. Xiaoyan sniffed. You'll be older than me. Close enough. Again they fell silent. Xiaoyan refreshed the tea. You sure you won't come see me off? asked Ming. You know I can't, said Xiaoyan. A press conference, said Ming, still stuck on the idea. Lao Shu never told me that you suggested that. Or Uncle Jake. He shook his head, remembering Jake's fierce, impotent bluster. What do you think he meant when he said he would stop you? It doesn't matter, Xiaoyan replied. Even if he shoots me dead, I left an envelope spelling out everything. Mona will... Mona's gone, Ma, said Ming gently. Sorry, my new lab assistant. Gita, Gita will read it to them if I don't make it. Time, among its other cruelties, had begun to stall her memory as well. Just a little, but even that little bruised her. So skip the press conference and come see me off, said Ming again. But he knew the request was futile. That much Lao Shu had told him. Neither Jake nor his mother would be there. Only Jake's new lab manager, the woman who had replaced Nome, 
would be there when he vanished from the world he knew. 3. It was past midnight when the buzzer rang. Gnome, who'd been waiting up but had fallen asleep in his kitchen chair, jolted awake and raced down the stairs to the outside door, as if afraid the visitor would leave. Hello, said Ming, stepping in and looking at Gnome with some wonder. It's hard to believe. Don't even start, said Gnome. And remember, back here I'm called Gnome. Don't fuck up. Hard to get used to. Make an effort. Gnome climbed the stairs heavily. Ming followed. They walked into Gnome's kitchen. Ming made a face. Not as nice as your other place. Gnome shrugged. I made tea, he said, but I think it got cold. I thought you'd be earlier. He waved Ming into a chair. I got the files together, he said, pushing the heavy cardboard box sitting on the table an inch closer to Ming. Don't forget to bring it with you tomorrow. And this, he tapped an envelope sitting on it, is the month to month in the city, Upper West Side. The address is in there with the lease, key, and everything. It's small, but it will do until you find another. Oh, and I made up the couch, he pointed through the wall. Thanks, said Ming. I'm sorry about the tea, said Gnome. I could make some more. You're such an old woman, said Ming. And you're such a young asshole, replied Gnome. Ming grinned. You've seen me younger. You were a lot cuter then. They sat in silence, contemplating the cold tea. We should get to bed, said Gnome, but neither moved. It's so strange, said Ming. I knew I would see her, but it's so horrible somehow. Gnome looked puzzled. To see her mother so young, you mean? Ming looked at him stonily. To see her alive. Gnome's mouth opened. But, but you always said you met her and Jake the day before. I did, replied Ming, and we did. And then the next day she died. His breath caught. He had mourned for a month trapped in his tiny tin can, but had spoken about it with no one, not even the woman who had seen him off. The day before she was fine, the actual day I left, he gestured as though dropping something, early that morning. Oh, Jesus, said Gnome. Ming sighed. She was old, he said, without conviction, though it was the simple truth. Gnome shook his head. When you hear about a death, he said, there's a blessing, you say. Dayan Ha-Emet, blessed be the true judge. But do you say it when the person isn't dead yet? Don't ask me, said Ming. Well, I can't ask a rabbi, said Gnome. Ming chuckled, but Gnome's face was serious. Oh, God, Ming, he said. What a thing to go through. And you must have left without being able to bury her. Yes, nothing, said Ming. I had to leave her, stretched out on the cold earth, and return. He shook his head. Maybe in forty years I'll get to bury her. I know I make it that long. I will if I can. Oh, God, Ming, said Noam again. Ming shrugged. Well, she's alive now, he said. Then he looked at the other man. She never finds out, he said. Noam sighed. Another secret, he said. Add it to the pile. They were quiet for a moment. I don't begrudge you talking about it, said Noam. Really, I don't. But it's going to be weird, seeing her for years and... I know. Sorry. Ming did not sound sorry. After another moment, he reached out, grabbed the box by the handhold cut in its side, and pulled it an inch or two, sliding it across the table towards himself. Heavy, he said. Going to be hard to manage on the bus. Can I even take the bus? I don't have a university affiliation yet. You have to take short line, 
said Nome. Campus to campus bus hasn't been started yet. Shit, said Ming. I hate the short line bus. The pass sucks, said Nome. But here we are. Ming snorted dismissively. The past sucks? You're telling me that? It all sucks, said Nome. He picked up his cup and took a sip. And the tea is cold, he added, at which both men laughed. Two. Jake sat alone in his lab at the central table and stared at the gun he had placed on it. He thought of how simple it would be to end all time and all questions forever. Raise, turn southward, fire. He thought again of what Ming said, extinguishing his brief moment of wicked relief at Xiaoyan's death, that she had left an envelope and instructions for her head of lab, and that whatever he did, the news would get out. Indeed, that Xiaoyan's death would but draw attention to it. 3.18 p.m. The moment he had waited forty years for would happen in less than forty minutes. By now, in a barren field he had visited once, his head of lab was helping Ming prepare to climb into the machine. The machine that already held him, the third Ming, neither Lao nor Xiao, the one that bridged the others. He shuddered. It was as if a wind was blowing somehow through the windowless room. He was terrified, trapped, hurtling downward second by second through the one-dimensional chute of time, unable even to squirm in terror. He could end it. He picked up the gun, felt its weight in his hand, and then put it down. Was it just that he was scared to die, wanted to hold it off as long as possible, rage against the dying of the light? No, it was something else, the only thing stronger than the terror that now closed his throat. Curiosity. He wanted to know what it was that was upon them, even if all that happened was nothing. He had been dying to know for so long, he could put off dying to know. Did they just stop as Ming, clever, treacherous, doubled Ming, had suggested? Xiao Yan's death could force the retirement, except wouldn't her press conference force rather worldwide knowledge? What could it be? 3.27. Less than half an hour now. He knew that it was possible that he would never actually know. Perhaps at 3.56, or minutes after, he died, ending the program. Perhaps a nuclear flash at 3.56 ended everything, and he would not even have time to recognize death's cheerless grin. But maybe, maybe, maybe. 3.33. It seemed time was slowing. Perhaps zero second was a moment like light speed. All slowed the closer you got, and he would sit here forever, stuck as each second lengthened, drowning in infinity. He thought of his daughter. They hadn't spoken in a few weeks. He wished now that he'd called her to say maybe goodbye. 3.34. He bowed his head. He would be ashamed to say he prayed, but he hoped, as if will could touch the cord of the universe. 1. As Xu Ming, just recently become Lao Xu, walked up to Nome's apartment door, bracing for the conversation he knew, since he told himself a month ago, forty years from now, was coming, he saw, unexpectedly, a shadowy form waiting in the darkness by the door. 
He thought for a moment it was a man lurking there, but then she stepped forward and it resolved into Mona. Mona, Ming said, and thought, she's so young. She was always older than me, but here, now, she seems like she's almost a girl. What are you doing here? She took a long time to answer. Then she said, you snorted when I asked whether things were better. What happens in the future that is so terrible? A flood of images in Ming's mind almost knocked him over. Was she asking for one thing? History, he replied. She made no immediate answer. Shu Ming stood there, looking at her silhouette, dark upon dark. Finally, she said, You said that three of you, you, Professor Wu and Professor Goldberg, met the day before zero second. Ming nodded. That's right. I'm not there. Ming took a deep breath in. The day's glory had been curtained by a brief rain, and now the drizzly damp smelled cool and dark and refreshing. I know Nome told you who he is, when he's from. Mona's nod was barely perceptible in the dark. Ming remembered, or thought he remembered, a light above the door of Nome's building. But here, now, it was dark, only the leaking light from a cracked window shade granting the smallest grace. Was that light burned out, or not yet installed? Or was it just imaginary? He couldn't see in the dark whether there was a fixture there or not. Then you know that you weren't there, and why you weren't there. Mona gripped herself as if cold. He didn't give me the details. I won't either. You can ask Nome and see if he'll tell you. He said he won't. He creeps me out. Rightly so. We backbenders are unnatural. Ming breathed in and out. You think I'm being cruel and not telling you precisely what happens to you, and that Nome is, but we're not, really. Knowing the ending, it's horrible. He blinked. I'm only realizing now, this second, just how horrible. It's not that. Mona waved the rest of her life away with a messy wave. I won't know, I won't ever know, what happens beyond zero second. That's right. Muna's voice rose and broke, as if she were suppressing a sob and a scream and a roar of rage all at once. I can't stand that. I can't. I could wait to know. But I can't go on knowing I'll never know. I just can't stand that. Ming looked at her, her features clarifying in the half-light. He sought within himself for sympathy, but found none. You will, though, he said. Then he stepped around her, attained the door, and hit the buzzer for Nome's apartment. Good night, Mona. The third time he hit the buzzer, he glanced over his shoulder. Mona was gone. Zero. Xiaoyan watched where Lao Shu had turned into the dark, drizzly night for a long time, as if he might change his mind, return, stay. And then, at long last, she went back inside and crept into her son's room, her son, who had just left. She didn't know when she would see him again. He had told her it would not be often. The thought brought a lump to her throat. But he was right. There he was, Ming, her son, her real son, the one she fed and loved and scolded every day. He was on his stomach, his legs tucked up, his butt in the air, his head turned to the side. He snored gently. And Nome. If the knowledge about her son her older, only son, had bent the world back upon itself, 
The fact about Nome had burst it apart. A few days before, she had known of no one who had gone back. Now there were two. One could be a singular exception, unique, but two. Two implied three, implied an indefinite number. Ming, Lao Shu, not the little boy before her, had said there would be more. He can't have just meant Nome, could he? But then, zero second. However many there were, they all had to be squeezed within four decades, a time that suddenly seemed so tight she couldn't breathe. If Lao Shu had made time an inescapable loop, if Nome had blown it apart, then zero second ended it. It felt like a death sentence, although of course she would live to then, and at least a second or two beyond. It was no consolation, though. What she wanted was the world to live beyond, and the silence gave no promise of that. Ming stirred, opened his eyes, and said, Ma. Xiaoyan shushed him, and said, Go back to sleep. Before she had said it, he already had. But she began very softly to sing to him again, one of the songs she sung to him every night, its voicing a promise of protection that she could not, but also would, keep. The beautiful jasmine flower, nothing in the garden compares to you. I want to pluck you, but I fear you would not grow next year. And that was the end, of course, of the story, of the first story. There are, of course, 26 more to come in the larger story. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can listen to the second installment in one month, which will be called Years Scattered Like Falling Leaves. Also, if you liked the story, please help spread the word by leaving a review or by telling a friend. And if you want to financially support the series, please consider buying an ebook. You can find links to all the ebook vendors and various other things at my website, stephenfrug.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-F-R-U-G dot com. This is the same handle as my email, except that it's at Google in case you want to get in touch for any reason. I'd like to give thanks to Sarah Saperstein Frug, who read the story section numbers. And I'd like to give thanks to Craig Brewer, who gave very helpful audio advice, and Tom Bruce, who gave very helpful audio advice and loaned me this microphone. The show's theme music is Alice in Dark Wonderland by Alexei Chistlin, I hope I'm saying that right, of Pixabay. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next month for years scattered like falling leaves. Thank you.